0: Looking for practical information to help you make decisions about your diagnosis, whether DCIS, early or metastatic breast cancer? BCNA's My Journey features articles, webcasts, videos and podcasts about breast cancer during treatment and beyond to help you, your friends and family as you progress through your journey. It also features a symptom tracker to help you manage the changing symptoms you may encounter during your own breast cancer experience. My Journey. Download the app or sign up online at myjourney.org.au.
1: Let's be upfront about breast cancer and navigating a diagnosis as an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. We know that cancer is now the biggest killer of Indigenous people and that Indigenous women are less likely to survive a breast cancer diagnosis than non-Indigenous women. Joining me on the land of Kulin Nations and to unpack the additional challenges that first people encounter when navigating the healthcare system due to a breast cancer diagnosis is Professor Jacinta Elston. Jacinta is an Aboriginal woman and has worked in the health system for more than two decades. She was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2003. She is also the chair of BCNA's First People's Advisory Group and deputy chair of BCNA's board. A reminder that this episode of Upfront About Breast Cancer is an unscripted conversation with Jacinta. The topics discussed are not intended to replace medical advice, nor necessarily represent the full spectrum of experience or clinical opinion. Please exercise self-care when listening to the podcast, as the content may be triggering or upsetting for some. Welcome Jacinta. Thank you, Kelly. So Jacinta, what are some of the barriers that Indigenous women face once they're diagnosed with breast cancer.
2: Well, I think um, the key barrier, Kelly, uh, that you know all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people face in general around the healthcare systems is about feeling safe in the system and I think that would be true as well for uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are diagnosed with breast cancer. So, you know, what's important in that context is that to feel safe in the system, you know, we need to be able to see Indigenous staff in the system. Um, We need to know that there is a sense that the system has an understanding of the barriers that we might face in accessing it. Um, Um, And that's regardless of where we come from, of course, because we're very diverse groups of people. We're not just one homogenous group of Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people. Uh, We come from different backgrounds, different areas of the country, some very remote, uh, some very regional and urban, the majority urban, in fact. But nonetheless, you know, we all come to our interactions with a very different set of experiences and understandings of the um, knowledge of, of. of the healthcare system and the way that we're engaging with
1: it. Okay, so the challenges or barriers to receiving the best care for Indigenous women would be distance, language, um, cultural uh, differences, and interruptions to treatment for various reasons. What are some of the ways that we can overcome that or help uh, indigenous, indigenous women to feel supported to overcome these barriers? For instance, with distance, uh, is it because Indigenous women have so far to travel that sometimes they don't do it or they don't do it with a support person? What are the practical ways that we can support women when distance is an issue.
2: Kelly, look, I think the other um, the other area that I would add or the other issue that I would add to to that list that you've just given as barriers would be finances as well. So um, I think you know, the the critical piece about engagement with the healthcare system and and being able to engage it is having the right support around you. So whether we're talking about somebody coming from a regional or a very remote sort of community into uh, a cancer care service, um, or whether we're talking about somebody who's in an urban setting who's accessing the service, finances does still become actually really quite important. Um, Finances will impact on whether the person has to Come by themselves or whether they can come with somebody else in the family to support them. Um, And that you know, having that capacity within the system to be able to support that is really important, and I know we've got you know those sort of services, um, that sort of you know, patient assistance sort of program in most of the healthcare systems across Australia that will allow a family member, for example, to travel with um a a patient but sometimes there are significant barriers around you know the way that that actually plays out and we do need some flexibility in that for aboriginal and torres strait islander patients i think again coming back to that notion of a safe sort of environment having an aboriginal torres strait islander person in the system on both ends is really important so both from you know whether you're in western sydney and you're predominantly um, accessing an Aboriginal medical service uh, through to the cancer care service that you're going to be accessing in Sydney, having an Aboriginal health worker on both ends uh, to help navigate becomes really important. Two, if you're in the Torres Strait and you're having to go to Cairns or Townsville for cancer care, again, having an Indigenous person uh, who's in the system on both ends to help navigate that is really important. Uh, And I think that is the most important thing is having safe space for Indigenous mob to come in and out of our services.
1: Right. So that is the first point of call is to find someone that you trust, uh, a designated uh, person within the health system. What if you don't have that? How do we help uh, women and men who are diagnosed to ensure that they've, in an ideal world they have it, How do you get one if you don't have one?
2: So again, um, let's say that you are not somebody who's coming out of a service or coming out of a general practice type service an Aboriginal medical service, for example, where you're getting good primary healthcare service that's sort of set up for indigenous mob. So you might be coming through a general practice uh, and you're not necessarily identified as an indigenous person in that system, but you've got a referral to turn up to a cancer uh, service. I guess uh, what becomes really important is at that, that point of care when you turn up to the cancer service, that they're they able to somehow identify you as an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander person. So, um, you know, we've done a lot of work and there still is a lot of work going on on Indigenous identification in patient healthcare systems. Um, and that requires our uh, people behind the desk to be able to be really comfortable asking the question of all patients, are you an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person? And you can imagine that if you know, you've got a very small percentage of Indigenous people who are accessing the service, to have to ask that to the greater majority, many of whom will not look Aboriginal or uh, won't, um, won't appear Aboriginal, becomes a daunting task for the person and behind the desk so they don't tend to ask it and that is one of the ways that we miss people so you know for example here in melbourne um when i go into peter mccallum uh, you know they've got aboriginal torres strait islander flag uh, um image uh behind the reception desk they've got the aboriginal torres strait Islander flags so i think on poles um there is a possum skin cloak In the reception area. All of those things are sort of signs that the healthcare system that Peter Mac is putting in place to try to say we are friendly towards Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people please let us know if you're here and I guess that's the most important thing that if the environment and the healthcare service providers are gearing their mind to the fact that although they're a small population of the people that they're going to provide care to in any given year making sure that the system uh, at least reaches out to make make Indigenous people feel like it's okay to identify uh, in the system is really important.
1: So, would the message then be, even though sometimes Indigenous people feel hesitant to declare that they are either Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islanders, that it's actually really important they do so that they can get that connection with the right people to ensure that they go down the right pathway to observe their
2: uh, cultural sensitivities. Uh, absolutely and I think one of the things that people can do is if they are at a healthcare service and it doesn't even matter what sort and obviously specifically we're talking about cancer but these are system-wide issues so if you're fronting up to a, a you know a cancer care service and you're at the reception desk uh, when they're asking you to fill out the paperwork you know you get the opportunity to say if you're an Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander person um, if they don't ask you the question you can say and I'm also Aboriginal if you've got that down could if you don't have that down could you listed? And is there an Aboriginal health worker or an Indigenous liaison officer who I can be connected to while I'm a patient of the service? I think that is probably one of the most important questions that an Indigenous person could ask right at the beginning of their treatment or their, their interaction journey with a healthcare system. But I think it's really important that that um, indigenous people out there know that we've come a long way. Um, when I was diagnosed with breast cancer, although it was many years ago now, nearly 18 years ago, and but I had a serious case of breast cancer, a very significant tumour. And, and, uh, and I got cancer care in a regional setting um, and I got good regional care cancer services um, at the time that I did. What was really um, different, I think, is that what's really different now, sorry, to back then, is that... All of our cancer care services around the country have been thinking more and more about what it is to provide good quality care to Indigenous people. Um, We've had a huge amount of work that's come out of Cancer Australia that has looked at what does optimal care look like for an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cancer patient. Um, And that's been really important that that work gets pushed out to the cancer care services. So I think it's important that Indigenous mob out there know that these services nowadays are very much thinking about how to provide good quality care to Indigenous people if they know that there's an Indigenous person in their service. Um, you know, asking for, just saying that you're an Indigenous person in the first instance, I think, um, means that they then know a subsequent set of things that they can put in place that will be helpful to help the journey for you through the system.
0: Um, not Such just as what? Family. Yes.
2: Well, for example, um, family conferencing, for example, might be something that might be dialed up for an Indigenous patient more so than it might be for a non-Indigenous patient. So, you know, we, we know that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander mob often need to have more family involved in the discussions and the conversations around what's happening to them at particularly different parts of the journey Uh, and so that might be something that becomes really important that you might um, have somebody being seen uh, in a cancer care service but be able let's say for example if we go back to that example of the torres strait that somebody might be in townsville but that the clinician might also link back to um, the thursday island primary health care center for a family conference conversation at the same time so family can join from the torres uh, thursday island primary health care center into some type of zoom type arrangement telehealth arrangement whilst their loved one is sitting in cairns or Townsville with the clinician the oncologist talking about the cancer journey and so both groups can be supported um that type of um cancer care might not necessarily happen or even be offered to a non-Indigenous patient.
1: Hmm. Language is also uh, a barrier, not only just uh, different languages uh, within communities, but I'm talking medical speak. Quite often that can be uh, overwhelming for anyone with breast cancer uh, regardless of language. Medical speak can be really daunting. What are some of the tips that you could give to Indigenous people when that's their situation, that they're being inundated or overwhelmed with with medical speak?
2: Well, again, I think that's where having access to that Indigenous liaison officer, the Indigenous health worker, um, becomes really critical for them. Um, Look, You know, if they're not by themselves, it helps a lot. If there are other family members also hearing um, the story of what's going on, that will help because there'll be different levels of sort of capability um, amongst different family members. And so between them, they can put the picture together, particularly if you don't have that Indigenous liaison officer. I've seen, you know, the best case scenario is where an Indigenous liaison officer is in the room or Indigenous health workers in the room with the patient, their family member and the clinician. And then after that appointment, they'll go back out and they'll sit and they'll rework through it with the Indigenous liaison officer to say, okay, what didn't you understand? What didn't you hear? Um, So, you know, often in a busy um, cancer care service, you might not be able to get the clinician to spend a lot of time on that, although I have seen them spend more time, um, you know, to be able to then have a second person do it. And in the absence of an Indigenous health worker, it might be a, um, a clinical um, other clinical staff, a, a, a nurse, um, you know, who might, a nurse practitioner who might sit with the family and really try to make sure unpack that they've understood the story of where the person's up to and what's mm. going to happen from this point on.
1: Mm. And of course, BCNA has got our nurses, our trained nurses that uh, can be called to explain any any medical jargon to help people's understanding and demystify a bit. So, that's, so yeah, that's always an option.
2: Calling the helpline, talking to other Aboriginal people who've had um, cancer, who've had breast cancer uh, is really important.
1: Yeah, and we know that's really important too, not just it's Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. That's, uh, one person's experience uh, will benefit someone someone else's journey. As, as they move forward. And we BCNA also has a, a dedicated um, discussion group, online group, uh, specifically for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders with breast cancer to connect and share those stories and, and seek support. Uh, what role do you think that, survivors do have I mean you had a you've just mentioned how important it was for you but for someone listening to this they really have the opportunity to not only uh take something for themselves from it but to help others
2: well absolutely I I mean when I was diagnosed I was 33 um My second child was 10 months old. Um, We didn't have online networks and we didn't have, you know, Facebook groups and things like that. And so, you know, I think for anybody who's going through this sort of journey now, reaching out to the breast cancer network, To their Indigenous network online network would be a really important opportunity to just connect. It's a space where you can just yarn about the stuff that worries you that you won't tell your family as well. I mean we talked before about the sort of the women's and the men's business stuff and part of that women's business stuff is that ever that additional layer of uh, of care and nurturing that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women um, provide to, and all women, but, but in an Indigenous context, that, that role of the Indigenous matriarch or that of any family uh, and the role that they play in supporting not just their own immediate sort of family, you know, you know, know, non-Indigenous context, that sort of nuclear family, but the extended families beyond it because that's really quite important for our mob is that sort of broad kinship relationship. And so you can have responsibilities both to generations below you, your nieces and your nephews and and others, um, to the generation beside you, your sisterhood, um, your cousin sisters, your own sisters, but also to the generation above you, your aunties, your mother, um, your grandmothers. And so when you're sitting in that place as an Indigenous person who's been diagnosed with breast cancer you know you're going through that experience yourself you're supporting your own nuclear family but you're also connecting out and supporting that broader family who all very much are reaching out to you and they want to help and they want to know how you're going but you feel a responsibility to make them feel like you're okay and actually the online network becomes really important because it's a place where you can say actually I'm not okay and there are you know cases where you'll be able to do that with your own family mom I'm not saying that they won't support you that way but often you'll be the person who's trying to uphold everybody else and let them know you're okay the online network is a place where you can just be not okay and ask the questions and ask the tough questions too um, or just watch the conversations that other people are having Um, and contribute what you want to contribute but also be able to draw from each other. I think that's one of the biggest things that's become really important from the BCNA work over the last couple of years is the development of this Indigenous network of women, predominantly women who are breast cancer survivors, talking about where they're on, where they're up to in their journey uh, but drawing strength from each other uh, and sharing with each other in a different way to the way that we might not have from
0: the others who are close to who we love and who love us. BCNA's online network is an active peer-to-peer support community where people affected by breast cancer can find information and connect with others who understand what you're going through read posts, write your own, ask a question, start a discussion and support others. The online network is available for you at every stage of your breast cancer journey, as well as your family, partner and friends. For more information, visit bcna.org.au forward slash online network. Let's talk about the
1: realities of interruptions to treatment for whatever reason, it's uh, not unique to Indigenous women, but sometimes because of distance, because of other events in your life, there is the necessity or this very strong desire to put something before your treatment. Um, and with Indigenous women, that, that is sometimes necessary. Can you speak to some of that and and ways for for women and men to do it properly rather than just stop treatment?
2: Thank you. Look, I think that's really important. The there is always very significant um, family and community responsibilities that Indigenous people are often holding that will mean that going through a treatment system or treat a journey of treatment you know, you know, very direct way for some won't be easy. Um, and we certainly know that for people from rural or remote areas, that is much harder to do, to not have interruptions to your cancer care because of um, things that go on and some of the really important pieces that will happen that might impact on the sorry business inside of our community and your own cultural and family responsibilities during sorry business to somebody else. Um, other community um pressures or or business that's going on might impact on your ability to be able to continue your own care. And so those things will happen. Um, And whilst the optimal care for you, as your clinicians and your care team would tell you, is that you should continue straight on through the treatment journey that they've planned at any point if there becomes a chance that you think you're going to have to stop treatment or that you're going to have to interrupt your treatment because of your own family or community responsibilities the most important thing that you can do is talk to your health care service providers. And again, that's where the role of the Indigenous health worker or the Indigenous liaison officer become really important. And, you know, I'm thinking of a place like the Alan Walker Cancer Care Service in, in Darwin, where, you know, they'd be dealing with a lot of mob from remote communities, particularly who will have very strong community ceremonial responsibilities. Who it would be very easy, I'm sure, for them to see people who have re- requirements or, or responsibilities that require them to interrupt their care and potentially put at risk the ongoing kind of commitment to their care. And so, you know, my encouragement to anybody who's in a situation where something's likely to interrupt their care is to just keep talking to your care providers so that they can work around it with you as best they can, you know, if at the end of the day, the decision is that, they, that you want to go home, working out with them what that looks like and making sure that you and your family understand the implications of that is really important. But in many cases, it might be the case that a clinician or care team can, can help work around it. Um, you know, people being away from country for a long period's time, which is what cancer care often is, will have a huge Impact on somebody's mental health during a cancer journey, and um, you know, not being able to go home, not being able to go back on country, um, being in an alien environment all of those things will impact on somebody's mental health, and so um that's probably the most important thing i think is that they just keep talking to those people who they feel safest to talk to about what's going on um and you know if there is a way to find a solution to disruption to care interruption to care To then go home come back and that's the best examples i've seen of it where people will okay i can't do i need to be home and i need to be home for two or three weeks what can i do but i will come back or that family know yes they're coming home but they need to come back Um, sometimes some of those pressures will come from people at home because they understand the role and responsibility from a cultural point of view that somebody has at a time of sorry business or a time of ceremony. Um, But if that mob at home can be brought into the picture and be included as a part of it, maybe there's a way that they can navigate through going home, doing what they have to do and then coming back. Again, kind of needs communication on all sides and that's where um, both the Cancer Care Service and the Home Health Care Service really need to be involved from a point of view of having great cancer communication that is culturally um, safe. Yes, and and
1: I think the, the overwhelming message there is don't just stop on your own decision speak to someone about it so that it it, like you said it can be managed it can be incorporated and planned for instead of just dropping out of the system Mm -hmm. and then worrying having those worries later as to why
2: people are worried about why you haven't turned up
1: and i guess to that end that's yeah
2: Sorry, or oh, that the service is chasing you and you're there yes. avoiding them. Uh, that's the, the other thing. But it's really about you being supported for the decisions that you need to make with as much um, understanding and awareness as possible.
1: Yeah, which again, the online network would be amazing for that. You can learn from others how they managed it when it comes to those sort of significant cultural events, how it can be managed
2: yeah, absolutely. And the people who are on the online network, apart from being breast cancer survivors themselves or people who are going through breast cancer journeys, are also people who are, you know, they, they might be health providers, some of them. Um, they might know the healthcare system. They might know about different things that you can access from Uh, community services or from other places or from the Cancer Council, like the information that they can share about, you know, where you might be able to find financial help, where you might be able to find um, a place to stay, things like that. Um, You know, I think you'll get, you'll see that there's a lot of information that um, MOB is sharing on the online network. I think the biggest thing that I could see through the online network is just that sense of hope that is built up um, you know for each other and supported um, and that acknowledgement of just a shared consciousness about what this experience is um, that's the probably one of the most important pieces of that um, the other thing is you know there's the other tools like the my journey online tool um, um, and you know being able to have in your line of sight what the journey should look like is really important What are
1: some of the other cultural overlays that we see?
2: Um, Look, I think there are different overlays at different stages of cancer experience and uh, interaction. And we've seen really amazing work um, happen um, over the last decade or so um, around Considering what does good quality palliative care service look like for Indigenous patients, um, and you know it is different. It is different, and um, you know, I, having having seen and experienced this myself with with family and 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 loved ones. Um, know the again my experience comes from North Queensland from Townsville and I think about the Townsville um, Palliative Care Centre and the times that we've had mob in there Um, and the staff have just been able to be very accommodating of the of the cultural needs of the families and the community so that might be you know trying to put um an Aboriginal patient in a particular part of the centre where family can come and go with a lot of ease, where there's going to be less disruption to other people. Um, You know, opening up the rules so that you can have more people coming, um, that you know, you can do different types of things there. Um, You know, the most important thing in that sort of end of life care is actually for us, we've got this holistic view of life and life continues on and um, this is about how we send somebody on to that next pace pace of that journey the next next phase of the journey and there's a whole lot of protocol depending on where you are in in the country there are different protocols for that and so again for the person who comes from you know remote western australia northwest northwest australia that's really critical maybe for them to go home. and so, what does going home mean for them? Leaving a large cancer care service, how do you transition them? How do you support them? How does a local local health service support them? All of those things become very different, maybe to what we might see in a Sydney or a Melbourne or a Brisbane um, in a palliative in a large palliative care service. So I, I that's where we see the different layers. Um, cancer Australia again did some great work on this optimal care pathway for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and. Um, one of the things is, you know, the, the key piece about that that report and that piece of work that they did was that that work is really about the health clinicians, the health services knowing that at every stage of a cancer journey, there are various layers of additional care and cultural context that need to be considered. Um, to accompany that, Cancer Australia have also put out a, a flyer. It's on their website. So if anybody is listening who, who wants to, they should look at the um, uh, Cancer Australia website, look for what to expect Aboriginal patients, um, and you'll find this great flyer which talks about if you're an Indigenous person, what should you expect from the cancer care services. And it lines up to what cancer care services are saying Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people need. And so I just really encourage people to look at both of those, um, you know, where where it's possible. Um, the flyer is very much a kind of grounded layman's um, document and it's, it's meant for community mob to be able to walk around, walk through and understand and have conversations with their family.
1: Yeah, I mean, the the health system has clearly come a long way to uh, nurturing and supporting Indigenous people, but so often we don't know what's out there, which makes it even more important for for people to connect with their um, advisor or their, their health professional to find out exactly what is available to them because it's it's getting better, it's come a long way. You as the chair of BCNA's First People's Advisory Group um, have been part of many changes. What are the priorities for the group now? Uh,
2: look, so, I mean, I think one of the things that we will really try to focus on in the coming year will be... Um, lo- recovering lost ground. Um, You know COVID has had significant impacts for um, you know, our whole kind of life uh, for every aspect of of life in in Australia, particularly here in Victoria, where we've been in the lockdown for much longer. One of the big impacts that has happened has been that um, many people might not have sought the care that they needed to seek as early as they needed to seek it um, during this lockdown process or during this COVID year, uh, and so. You know, advocating and supporting um, people to get back into healthcare service um, service systems to, you know, go back look for the help that you need, re-engage the healthcare system, those kind of things will be really important. Um, we want to do more work as a group on what does um, cultural care look like. You know, we've done these other cloaks uh, projects through BCNAs, so there's been a weaving project in Queensland uh, where breast cancer survivors sitting around together um, weaving, so culture is health, culture is healing. Um, the cloak that's at the Peter Max service here in Melbourne came from one of those projects. So we're very keen to look at how can we expand that type of work so you know, women and men affected by breast cancer who are indigenous coming together, um, sharing their stories, creating their own sort of virtual um, face to face networks where possible. But I think strengthening that online network will become one of the things that we really need to focus on. Uh, the other thing is just how do we get more of our own indigenous survivors together? Um, how do we help spread the word that they're not alone uh, and how do we make sure that we're connecting them uh, more and more to the other resources of BCNA uh, and also, you know, working with the team at BCNA to be clear about where the other services that we've got might need some um, refocusing for an Indigenous audience. Absolutely. And uh, above all, that uh, no one has to do it alone.
1: And there are many services and many more services that will be available to support anyone who's uh, been diagnosed with breast
2: cancer. Jacinta, thank you for joining us on Upfront. Thank you very much, Kelly. And uh, to all the sisters and brothers out there who might be listening, I wish them well.
1: Thank you. Jacinta, this podcast was brought to you with thanks to Dry July. Don't forget BCNA's My Journey online tool has a range of resources available for First Nations people living with breast cancer. With thanks to our First People's Advisory Group, we are constantly updating specific and relevant information and support services for those who identify as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. BCNA's online network, as we mentioned, also has a dedicated discussion for Aboriginal and Torres. Strait Islanders with breast cancer. To sign up the My Journey online tool, visit bcna.org.au or call our helpline on 1800 500 258 and the team will assist you. I'm Kelly Curtin. Thanks for being upfront with us.